I remember sitting in the Howard Johnson motel dining room. Um, that's where a lot of us had our rooms, you know, at the time on US 19 North, there in the Tampa Bay area, the Howard Johnson Hotel. And I was sitting at a table talking to Greg Hagland. I call him you know, Greg, it's William Greg Hagland. And I said, boy, it sure would be nice if I could meet Bob Minton. It's, you know, I had heard about the man and some of the things he was doing, throwing money around to people like I knew from my friendship through Jerry Armstrong that he'd given Jerry a sizable amount of money. Mm. And I knew from Arnie, Arnie, same mm. thing, had gotten quite a chunk of change. And, well, several others, and I won't name, but mm. um, Greg said, oh, <laughs> oh, warrior, turn around. That's Bob right there. He was sitting behind me with his back to mine. And I waited till he was done talking and tapped him on his shoulder and said, hey, Bob, I'd like to introduce, I'm Warrior. And he's like, hey, Warrior, wow, glad to meet you, you know, Bob. And um, during our conversation, I mentioned basically that there is so much more I could do as an activist. And I was lamenting the fact that I did not own a scanner. Okay. And Bob reached in his coat pocket and pulled out a cashier's check for a thousand dollars and handed it to me and he said this should buy you the scanner you need and literally i started to cry mm -hmm. and i said i don't need that much money bob a scanner is like i think 160 dollars plus tax you know He's like no problem keep it you might need some optical character recognition software like OmniPage Pro. You might need some more RAM for your computer, whatever. No strings attached. Mm. You do with the money, whatever you like. Mm. Just and consider for, it. For anybody watching, Bob Minton was never involved with Scientology. He, he was a multimillionaire right. who uh, mm. was offended and affronted by what Scientology was doing. And so, right. you know, used a, a large part of his fortune to to help people and then himself of course became the subject of a massive scientology counterattack. um yeah so that he and he'd married um stacy uh brooks stacy young along the way and and they sort of withdrew from the fray i contacted bob very late on probably 98 when i was trying to buy a piece of blue sky back out of bankruptcy and Scientology had made an offer of 15,000 pounds to buy all of my um, stuff out of the bankruptcy, which oh. they'd inflicted upon me through legal costs. So totally to do with legal costs that I was bankrupted. And uh, I went to him and said, look, you know, I'm, I need this money. The trustee has said that normally what they do is auction, but he, he said, look, this, you know, when he'd started in 95 on the bankruptcy, he was ruthless. He was awful. The things they told him about me, I had four days on the witness stand in mm. which they proved that there was £3.50 that I hadn't declared in the bankruptcy. £3.50. That was Whoa. the whole thing. But four days being grilled by their barrister. And, you know, we got to the end. Of, so he'd been awful, this trustee. He'd been really dreadful. Mm -hmm. And then during the second year he'd started to realize that there was something hokey going on and by the end he said look 
this is, I'm retiring. This is my last job. They've offered 15,000 pounds. If you can meet it, I won't put it to auction. You know, I, I will break the rules for you because these are awful people. Oh, and, cool. <laughs> but it still meant I had to raise 15,000 pounds, which is in fact the cost of the four days of hearings at the start of the thing. How much and is I, that US money? 15, that's about $20,000. Okay. Yeah. So I went to Bob Minton. It was my first contact with him. And by that time, you know, he was mm. on the ropes. He, you know, he couldn't provide anything. Um, thankfully, yeah. some other people did come up. And, and so we still do own, you know, uh, all of those things that I wrote. I mean, by now, it's so just a massive material, about 500 articles I've published. But so a large part of that was the Lisa McPherson Trust. And we maybe should just put in that Lisa McPherson was a, a very dedicated Scientologist who had a, a manic episode, was taken to a psychiatric hospital. She was taken out of the hospital by Scientologists and she was found dead um, with uh, ligature marks on her wrists and her ankles. And she died, I believe the cause was dehydration. Yeah. And uh, it was a case that was supervised by the current head of Scientology, David Miscavige. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, um, there was, you know, almost nothing happened. And so you guys, I'd, I'd withdrawn by 96. I'd had enough, you know. <laughs> It, it was not a good thing to be doing. The the courts wouldn't yeah. support me. I couldn't, I had nothing financially. I was living on charity to do what I was doing pretty much. Doing some interventions so that I could use that to be able to talk to people who didn't have, you know, the 98% of ex-Scientologists who didn't have any money to be helped. Um, but it was, it just become an, an awful life. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah. And it, that's the kind of pressure that we face. It's funny talking with Aaron Smith Levin a couple of months ago and you know, asking him about, you know, he was sort of, what harassment? You know, they, they've got nothing left. And, and <laughs> trying to say, I got 16 years of this every day, you know. But uh, thankfully, yeah. you know, we paved the way for them to have a an easier life than, than we did in that respect. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because in those days, back in the mid-90s, when I became an activist in 95 there generally was a lot of fear of what Scientology or OSA could do to people hmm. there weren't a lot of activists then relative to now or critics speaking out well Arnie, Arnie Lerma when when I asked him for a puff for, for the new full edition of let's sell these people a piece of blue sky um, said before the internet and safety and numbers, there was John Atack. And <laughs> I, I mean, there was Lawrence Wallachai and Bob Penny and Jerry Armstrong, notably yeah. at that time as well. But yeah. um, there weren't many of us. Oh, and, yeah. And yeah. it's only really with ARS, Alt Religion Scientology, which was one of the, the major forums and the original World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. It's only with that that suddenly with anonymity it, it went from there being less than 10 critics of scientology in the world to there being more like ten thousand. you know which, which is a, yeah. a good thing and so they focus on the celebrities so mike rinder will still be getting something leo remini tony ortega um but mm. i i was amazed when i came back in 2013 i came back because i realized that 
most people don't recover from Scientology. They just change the language and keep believing the weird nonsense that Hubbard's put into their heads. And I don't mind people believing weird nonsense as long as they're thinking about it, as long as they you know, have examined it and thought about it. But when I came back, I really thought, you know, it's all going to start again. And it didn't. You know, they're just so overstretched now that they decide, you know, they decided not to put the resources into silencing me. So, I mean, we've probably put up about 150 videos about Scientology <laughs> on this channel with no threats whatsoever, uh, yeah. which is which I'm very pleased about. Well, back in the day, I definitely was uh, one who had a healthy respect of what OSA was capable of doing. And originally, when I started posting on alt-religion Scientology, I did it anonymously. Hmm. Unfortunately, I never at the time saved most of those posts I did, but I was a, a variety of different uh, nicknames or usernames hmm. and different email addresses because at the very beginning, I was afraid I might screw up and out myself. So I had hooked up early on with a critic in Berlin named Tillman Hausstetter. Yeah, Tillman has some of my things still on, on his site over there. Wonderful. He man. was a great friend. And mm. he was the first non-Scientologist or non-ex member. He never was involved with him mm. that I connected with. Back in 95, around the same time I hooked up with Arnie, I was mm -hmm. spilling to Tillman, telling my story. And he would just take what I sent to him and post it using a remailer. Yeah. And so I would be talking as nobody at hugecojones.com or nobody at anonymous.com or later on, Miss X at mailmasher.com. Mm -hmm. That was me. And I admit that much because by then I began to save my posts and put them up on a website, you know, mm. my own website. Mm. By then I had pretty much gotten over my fear of OSA. They already knew who I was. They'd already been fair gaming me and messing with my family and everything badly too. Because I had gotten involved in so many cases and done affidavits that it was a matter of public record. So they knew who I was. Mm. And, um, and, and, and I mean, we, we should probably have a separate conversation about the harassment because it's going to take a while to cover oh, yeah. that sort of material. Let's, let's, I want to finish off your involvement with Asho oh, and, and how, yeah, what, what happened. Out. Why it was that, that you left? What, what it was that happened after you found uh, was, out about uh, the credit bank? and There were a lot of things that happened over the years. Um, in the first place, when I arrived in 1975, when I first got to L.A., I had been promised by the recruiter, oh, yeah, you get pay and bonuses. You get this great food. And you even, matter of fact, you have your own steward that's going to serve you in the, in the mess, the galley. You have a bunk, you know, a room. You and your wife will have what we call a 2D, a second dynamic, you know, married couple space. You will have a nanny who will be taking care of your son. And they paint this really rosy picture about how wonderful everything is, you know, the compensation that we're going to get for mm -hmm. 
Well, we arrived in LA and all of a sudden like, no, they didn't have any space, any room for us. Um, we were first told to go over to the cadet org where they take care of the little kiddos, the cadets, the Scientology, you know, children. And I walked into the building they called the Melrose. It's on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood. Mm. There were four or five kiddos crawling around on the linoleum tile, reeking of urine, and no adult anywhere to be found in reception area in the lobby where these kids were unsupervised. And I was like, when I saw that, I wanted to just turn around and go right back home to Texas. But I didn't have the money to do that. I'd spend it all getting to LA. I had had a little bit extra, but uh, crossing over from the New Mexico to the Arizona line, I just crossed over into Arizona. And the service station attendant where I stopped to gas up said, that tired pretty bald there you don't want to have a blowout on this highway they get really hot in the mm -hmm. arizona sun and he was right and what little money I, extra i had I ended up buying a tire put on my car okay it's another whole story about that trip really interesting trip up mm -hmm. here i almost didn't make it to la because a man was along for the ride as far as el paso because he was accused of causing the collapse of Narconon in New Orleans. Which is Scientology's drug rehabilitation group. Right. He was wanted for a trial, a committee of evidence mm. at the flag operation liaison office for the Western United States in LA. Mm. He went along with me, you know, but when he got to El Paso, he decided that's it. I'm not going any further. He made up some reason why he couldn't go. By the way, that is the month I first met Jerry Whitfield. Yeah. October 75. He was the assistant guardian for Narconon El Paso. That yeah. time. And that's where I spent, uh, me and my wife spent the first night of our trip. Mm. That was 600 miles from Austin to El Paso. I drove day one. Day two, I drove the remaining 800 and some odd miles into L.A. Wow. Broken into, you know, two-day trip. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I got there, and it was just shit. I'm sorry. It, it just pitiful and bad. Mm -hmm. The pay ended up not being what we were promised. Sometime we were on rice and beans. There was no nanny for my son. Nothing. All the promises they made were lies. In fact, mm -hmm. not only that, but they told my wife that she wasn't even qualified for the Sea Order because they said she has a psych history. That's another whole story. She didn't. And that had the, the, the involvement with the Neurological Institute had all been explained prior to us even signing our contract or going to LA. It was all fine. But then when we got there, all of a sudden, she's not qualified, and they separated us. And I had to go live in a dorm with eight or nine other guys, you know, bunk beds three high in the Hollywood Inn at 6724 Hollywood Boulevard, that building with the long vertical Scientology sign. Yeah. 
that was where at the time they were running the um, estates project course, the basic Sea Org indoctrination mm-hmm. course, uh, the flag operation liaison office, Bolo, mm-hmm. West, mm-hmm. Western United States was there. Uh, and the Sea Org birthing, you know, all the upstairs floors were like hotel rooms, basically, mm-hmm. where, where staff had their quarters where they would sleep. Yeah. A galley, a restaurant, you know, down below on the street level and whatnot. But the EPF, States Project Force, would run out of the basement of that building at the time. Hmm. Um, so I had a, a, a room there with eight or nine other guys, which is not good. In the morning, picture eight or nine guys sharing a bathroom and hurrying to try to get shit shower and shave if you will and then get on post oh crazy but Mm -hmm. there was so there was that a year later 76 we received a mission in the form of wayne marple flag mission order 1674 in charge Mm -hmm. and it's mission second was Jack German, the HCO area set secretary for Ash Show Day. Hmm. And they call all the parents together in the St. Hill Special Briefing Course practical room. It's in the old Ash Show on Temple Street. And said, we have located a ranch, a facility for the new cadet org. But due to the fact that it is um, so far away from the orgs in LA, parents won't be able to see their children every day, effectively canceling family time. Yeah. And that was an, an important thing for me because in, when I joined the Sea Org in 1975, my little boy was 10 months old, mm. my oldest son. Yeah. By 1976, he's going on two, not, not even two. Yeah. And that was a condition that, you know, we have a nanny and you get to see your kid every day for family time, which is an hour and dinner, 45 minutes. You can take them to dinner with you too, if you want, you know? So I was getting an hour and 45 minutes a day with my kid. That was cool. Yeah. I could live with that. Yeah. Pretty much what I would have done if I weren't even in Scientology to begin with. I mean, you know, that's a decent amount of time and I was fine with that. But then, when the mission came and said, now you're only going to be able to see your kids on the weekend on libs if your stats are up. Because we can't allow to see your kid every day because the travel time would cut across production too much. We're talking about an hour drive each way. Hmm. You can't see your kid. And oh boy, I remember when they said that. And I looked around the room at all the parents. They were all what Scientology called BIs, bad indicators. indicators. They're all frowning. And some of them are going, you know. And I could see that, you know, I was far from the only one who, that was a moment where I immediately became disaffected right then and there. Like the decision was, well, this bullshit's going to be what's going on. I'm out of here. But I didn't immediately leave or anything. I wrote a letter on the SO1 line. I'm writing to the old man thinking, you know, 
because Hubbard wrote in Child Dianetics something to the effect of parents should spend an, an hour a day with their child, call it Johnny's time or whatever he called it, mm. and do whatever the child wants within reason, of course. And I wrote to the old man saying, you know, well, how do you square what the mission is telling us that we're not going to be able to see our kids every day, but you say in Child Down and Ace, this, is it your intention that parents only be allowed to see their children on the weekends if their stats are up? I got a letter back that said, my intention is laid out in Back Base Order Series 18. If you haven't read the, read the issues, I suggest you get a hold of them and, and read them. Okay, well, so I did that. These are a series of issues written by Wayne Marple and the missionaries, Pack Base Order 18, 18 1 2 3, and so forth. Didn't answer my question. Right. Uh, you know, this is not telling me what Hubbard's intention is because all the issues were not written by Hubbard. None of them were written by him. So I write back to him and say, okay, sir, you know, I've read these issues. I still would like to know is it your intention? that parents only be allowed to see the children on the weekend if their stats are up. Yeah. You know, I repeat the auditing question. Yeah, TR3, <laughs> training routine three, repeat the auditing question, right? Yeah. You know, I get a letter back later. Well, you need to report to Qual and word clear the pack base order 18, sir. And I'm thinking, that's freaking invalidated is what I'm thinking. Like, uh, what a load, mm -hmm. a horse to, you know, like, yeah. Of course, I did it because I'm complying to the old man thinking, you know, well, again, you know, back then I was actually of the illusion or, or delusion, if you will, that I was actually communicating Ron. I know better now. But. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote letters over the years and, and believed it. It was only when I saw the Laurel Sullivan order that I realized I'd yeah. been duped. So we went back and forth a few times and finally... I, I had enough. I wasn't getting an answer to my question. And it looked like what was going to happen was just what Wayne Marple and Jack German were saying. We're going to have this ranch and the kiddos are going to be there because they were too much of a distraction to production. They're too much of a problem. Later on, I saw LRH advices where there are to be no children in Cedars. None. He didn't want them around. I, I got into a conversation the other week with Karen de la Carrier, and mm -hmm. I thought the abortion rule was something that David Miscavige had brought in, and she put me right. She said, no, on the ship, you, if you got pregnant and you wanted to have the child, you'd be sent to a, a land organization. You weren't, the, you know, children weren't allowed until, of course, they were 11 years old and could become slaves to run Hubbard. I, I think that's why... When I joined the Sea Org in 75, the commanding officer was a woman named Irene Howie. Mm -hmm. Now, previously, she had been Irene Dunleavy. She's married to Tony Dunleavy, and mm -hmm. she was on the ship, the, the Apollo, and got pregnant mm -hmm. and left the Sea Org. Even before the Sea Org, she had been at St. Hill in England, mm -hmm. and really old-timer, and she's still in to this day. But So... She was commanding officer at Asho. This Irene, maiden name Irene Johnson, and she's from Australia. Mm. Um, 
I think her parents were Scientologists too, maybe. I'm not sure. But yeah. So she was Irene Johnson, then Don Levy, and then Howie. She was married to Bill Howie, who ended up owning a mission in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And they divorced. And then she married Jack German, the HCO area sick. And she's to this day going by that name and still married to Jack. She had left the Sea Org because of being pregnant, yeah. not wanting children, you know, on the ship. Mm. Okay. Um, okay, so there I was with the understanding that ultimately what's going to happen is we have a cadet ranch and I'm not going to be able to see my kid every day. And I came to the conclusion that I, I'm not going to fight this anymore. I'm just going to go over to ethics and tell them, put me on a routing form, I'm leaving. The mm. seal routing out, yeah, the proper way. I'm gonna get on a routing form, I'm going to do my lower conditions. Okay, I will wait around for an auditor to give me a sec check, a security check. And so, yeah, I was assigned the lower condition in '77. Now, two years in, I wanted to leave and um. Well, this is the second time I won. The first time was the day I arrived in LA. I wanted to turn around and go back home. But now, this just, I'd already been separated from my wife for almost two years anyway, because she wasn't allowed to be in the Sea Org after signing a contract here in Austin and then reporting to LA. They said she'd not qualify. But I'd already been separated and living like with other guys in a dorm and my wife lived with a woman who was staff at Asho, Ruthie Weisberg. She was a public executive secretary for Asho. Lived off base. I don't never knew why, but my wife lived there with Ruthie. And there's another roommate guy who was a non-CR contracted letter registration typist, Ray Peck. Very unusual that he was not a sealed member, but he was staff who lived there too in the house. So, you know, I was already not really able to be a family unit, not to be with them much at all. And then they wanted to take away what little I had and make it only once a day if my stats were up. Once I mean, a week. Once, once a week if my stats were up. I was ordered to set security checks and I had a bunch of them mm. for 17 weeks. I was checked, you know, security check, no pay, you know, all that time, of course, mm. but I was in a lower condition, treason, betrayal of trust, <laughs> go figure. They're the ones who broke their contract with me, mm. their agreement with me. Absolutely. But I'm the one that's wrong, right? Okay. Mm. And as Elrond Hubbard says, we always deliver what we promise. Oh, yeah. Flag order 732. A Sea Org member is supposed to get his allowance, right? Okay, sure. Yep. I, it's amazing looking back at how much bullshit I put up with mm. because I believed in the cause. Yeah, as yeah. Solzhenitsyn put it, for the good of the cause, the things yeah. we're willing to do. We're going to save the, the planet and... <laughs> bring everybody to enlightenment any day now any day now we'll clear the planet well 
there's an earlier story, you know, maybe that's another time, why I even joined the Sea Org to begin with. It mm. wasn't to get my case handled, I'll tell you that much. Mm. I never even considered that I had a case. Mm. No, me, me neither, really. I, I attested uh -huh. to natural clear in the so end. So did I. So yeah. did I. In, in uh, January of 1979. Mm. I, was, I was around the same time. Yeah. Around the same time. Well, what number are you? I'm 11070. Well, the orgs are assigned batches of numbers, so it, it's hard to say. That yeah. I uh, was 17876. But, yeah, I knew uh, they were batches, so there's no actual correlation between the number and a time. Because mm. you can have a later number, but actually a test earlier. Mm. And vice versa. Yeah. Well, I know this because I used to work pretty closely with the Auditor Magazine editors mm. that time period. And I knew how there were batches of clear numbers given out to the different orgs. So, yeah. And and they were given out with a certain degree of optimism, I think. So yeah. so that it seemed as if there were far more clears, you know, and I whatever that term means. I mean no, I, I don't think every, anybody achieved it, but there were people like you and me who were fundamentally cheerful people who wanted to help others, mm -hmm. and we would be, you know, designated of as, as natural mm -hmm. clears um, to explain why Scientology wasn't working. One of the many uh, explanations as to why Scientology. I was getting audited on Dianetics, and the only thing happening was I was getting splitting headaches. And... Mm -hmm. I finally threw down the cans and discussed one day in session when the auditor asked me again, is the incident erasing or going more solid? And I said, neither. Not do, you know, it's like a memory. It's like what I ate for breakfast this morning. I can run through that and recall that and every other damn thing forever. It's not going to erase. It's not getting more solid, but... I sure have a hell of a headache, like migraine level headache. Mm. So then that was that on Dianetic auditing. And then I got put on the end of endless interiorization rundown. And that was more misery. Mm. And then yeah, endless one, misery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One Saturday, I went out and got rip roaring drunk with a bunch of staff at Asham. Jeff Auburn, Dip Six, uh, the staff section officer, Jackie Mercer, who was from Austin, actually, too. Uh, the hippie chick I knew eight years before we, either of us, got in the Sea Orb. She was hanging out at all the psychedelic rock clubs. And I knew her husband, who was in a band called Ramon and Ramon and the Poor Daddios. They were like a shamana type of oh. rock and roll, you know, band. Yeah, back to the she's a staff stuff. section officer. Mm. She's still in. She won't talk to me because I put in theta on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, though she's probably a communication release and can communicate can communicate freely to <laughs> anyone on any subject, according to psychologists. Sure. sure. Well, so I I mentioned something while I was a little drunk that night. Whatever it was, I don't know what got written up to the case supervisor by my buddy, Jeff. But I do recall next thing I knew, I was being called into an interview in session asking if I wanted to attest clear. Apparently I voiced the clear cognition, I guess. Mm. I don't, but yeah. 
And then it was explained. Which, if anybody wants to find the clear cognition, this great secret, you just look up the definition of clear in the Scientology Technical Dictionary. And if you parrot that to an auditor, you mm -hmm. can attest to clear. It's yeah. great. <laughs> well, the same is, in fact, true of all of the EPs, the end phenomena of the grades, all of it. You just read what it says in there and say that. Yeah. I'll let you through. I don't think I said, you know, anything like I'm mocking it up. I, I don't think that I ever said that. I think I would have said something to the effect of, this is bullshit, I don't have a bank. Mm. Which is kind of the reverse, but saying the same thing. Mm. If you're mocking it up, well, anyway. Well, it, it appears that OT8, the highest level in Scientology, is realizing that, no, it was all made up. Yeah. And now you've got to pay to un undo well, the mess. Like I now money. know who I am not, or something to that effect. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm lucky. I got as far as Sunshine Rundown, mm. and that was it. And I was done with it. Mm. So I never did solo auditors course. I never had the OT eligibility, you know, check. Or mm. that. Never got on to OT1, nothing. Lucky you. Sunshine Rundown, I was done. And that, along with the fact that I never had any auditor indoctrination or training, mm. made it really easy for me just to put all that indoctrination behind because I wasn't all steeped in all this false mm. data. I was an admin guy. All eight years I was in the SEAL. So I considered that that made it a considerably easy to recover and deprogram myself yeah to decompress it, yeah. it and to digest the experience i i did six major auditing audit training courses though there are a lot of rumors about me not being mm -hmm. trained at all uh it's interesting <laughs> there are rumors about me being a heroin addict a rapist a child molester <laughs> all sorts of things but they're not in fact true um but i think i think that's a valid point that if you've had a lot of auditing a lot of scientology supposed counseling um and if you trained then it, it really is it's more invasive than any other system i mean conway and siegelman in snapping said the most debilitating set of rituals of any cult in america and they reckoned it was 12 and a half years to recover where you know the krishnas yeah. of the moonies was three to six months and when i was in touch with them a few years ago courtesy of tony ortega and i said you know the 12 and a half years was a guess wasn't it it's not you know, it's like, yeah, and, and the reality is they probably don't recover. But no, I read I read 14 years somewhere, like there you go. Psychologists to recover. I don't yeah, think it was and unaided. And and I mean, let me just say this that that I figure that in one day it's possible to get somebody through all of the significant stuff so that they can then take charge of the recovery process. People think that it's like I had a thousand hours of auditing, so I'll need a thousand hours to undo it. And no. The thing is to give you agency so that you know what to do and how to deal with the nonsense that's in your head. And that takes a day, but you know, I never yeah. fails. Um, I never, like I said, when I left earlier in, in this interview, I said, you know, when I left in 83, I pretty much just stopped being a Scientologist and I didn't yeah. think much of it until that day I saw Arnie on CNN headline news. Yeah. Told you. If it ever came into my consciousness, it would be something like, give you a real example. My son would be sent home from school because he had come down with the chicken pox. Mm. 
and the thought would, oh, he's PTS. He's a potential trouble source. He's had contact with a suppressive go, person. You know, I would question that and go, no. He goes to a public school. Mm. He's exposed to illnesses and viruses and germs and whatnot. Okay. But he's not PTS. Come, you know, bullshit. Mm. That's how I deprogram myself when a a concept would pop into my head based on what Hubbard said. Mm. I would just examine. And, and ended up one for one practically rejecting it all that that was ex that's exactly what yeah. i show people how I to did. do it yeah. and i did it myself mm. you know, once you once you've got that going once you realize that you can question these things you can examine them using logic mm -hmm. or if one wants to call it critical thinking and and say well that's not in fact true the great example for me was i was talking with a, a woman who'd grown up in Scientology, been in the C organization, had an absolutely dreadful experience of it all. And it was sort of what about 15 years later, you know, she'd left, it was all gone. But because she'd grown up in it, she didn't have anything else. She's very intelligent. She had a, you know, got a university degree after she left. Mm -hmm. And, and she said to me in our first conversation, is it true that reality is agreement? And, um, my response was, well, if you're the hypnotist, yes. But otherwise, no, reality is out there. And as Immanuel Kant, I'm told, pointed out, you have your representation of reality that you live in, but it's not because we're all agreeing it's there that it's there. Mm -hmm. The next week, she, you know, and we just met. The next week she came back and said that um, she put scented laundry conditioner in to her wash. And we both knew what she was talking about. We hadn't talked about the hygiene hat of the C organization where Hubbard's scent phobia, something he shared with Rajneesh, he had it too. Nope. But Hubbard's, in you know, terrible fear of being poisoned by the psychiatrist with rose perfume. Yeah. So C organization members are not allowed to use perfumes. And so all of these years later, she could perform this act of rebellion. And those are the two things, one being able to to go, well, if you increase communication, do you increase affinity, as Hubbard says? So, you know, Hubbard said bullets too are communication. So if somebody shoots me, I'll like them more. If somebody yells at me, I'll like them more, which does seem to be a basic idea in the sea organization. This is nonsense. It's not only nonsense, it's puerile nonsense. It, yeah. it's, there's, it evaporates. Um, but, but so the first thing is being able to challenge it and think your own way through it and being entitled to have enough authority to question what Hubbard said. And, mm -hmm. and the second thing is, is to then rebel against the little rules that have been implanted and instilled along the way. So you, you just, as you say, you naturally deprogrammed yourself. You know, by the time you were done, the love affair was over and you were ready for the divorce. You know? Well, that's how i did it yes and there wasn't it doesn't seem like there were that much to actually question because of my my training like i said was purely for the most part administrative hmm. okay there were a few different things about hubbard's way of doing finance hmm. okay but i generally didn't take issue with any of that it made sense at least why he would want it done that way even the statements he made about how we assign this significance before the 
tax cruds do or whatever, you know, the IRS men. Because hmm. he's seen made statements about how, you know, uh, what is, or, you know, is uh, it's a matter of imagination. Hmm. Okay. The man with the most imagination wins. Hmm. You know, we assign the significance to the figures before they do. He with the most imagination wins. Hmm. Crap like that. Like, okay. I got that he was hiding, you know, and evading taxes and whatnot. Mm. I, I didn't have a problem with that, of course, as a Sea Org member. Mm. Okay. But as far as deprogramming, there wasn't a lot of so-called technical garbage mm. to shed because mm. I hadn't been indoctrinated in it. Well, so anyway, getting back to you know, the sec check in 77, because I yep. wanted to leave. After 17 weeks of being security checked virtually every day, and I got done with all that, and the execs basically said, look at that, Mark doesn't have overts and withholds. You know, he doesn't have crimes, hmm. secrets. That's not why he wants to leave. He wants to be a family. And I'm like, duh. Been telling you, okay. I mean, you finally get it now, mm -hmm. assholes. Mm -hmm. And then next thing, like, oh, and your wife, Kathy, she's not a psych case. She actually is qualified to be in the Sea Org. It was a total arbitrary, and they're actually even countermanding Jane Kember, the Guardian Worldwide, that actually even declined my wife's permission or petition. Yeah. And gave her a very steep qualification program to be able to get into the Sea Org. Mm. With nuts, you know, it would be a class four OT3 at least mm. before you can be allowed to join the Sea Org. It's another whole story, but mm. so all of a sudden she's okay to be in the Sea Org. Why? Oh, to save Mark, because we don't want to lose Mark, the slave that works 104 hours a week in Treasury. And who's a chronic upstat? My stats were chronic affluence for years. I can prove, look at my website, warrior.zenu.ca. I've got webbed 58 very upstat certificates on my website that I earned. I had and, and the to one to interject for, for, for those who've uh, not had the misfortune to be involved with Scientology. Everything in Scientology is is measured by statistics. It, it's pretty much Hubbard's reworking of the Taylor Management Time and Motion system, um, which has long been shown to be a not a very good idea in managing people because it treat, treats them as machines. Um, and the idea is that you'll be assigned an ethics condition according to your statistic. So if you have a flat line, that's non-existence. If you're going up slightly, that's normal. Then you have affluence, you have power. Then you have ones where your statistics are going down. So the power statistic is a, you know, almost mm -hmm. a vertical line. So if in, in the simplest terms, every position in Scientology has a statistic. Um, so if you're a letter registrar, the amount of letters that you send out and the amount of letters that come in, that would be your statistic. If mm -hmm. you're you're selling something, then it's the amount of money you make. The fundamental statistic of Scientology is the amount of money you make. As Aaron Hubbard said, the, the governing policy of Scientology is make money, make more money, 
make others produce so as to make even more money. Um, right. That's the basis of the Scientology religion, the governing policy. He called it the governing policy. It's not me that's calling it that. So you, you're you saying basically that, that you were a highly productive member of the staff and that you can prove it and that anybody can who wants it. to can go and check on your website if they want to. Well, yeah. When I joined and was posted into Treasury that showed we were insolvent. We had more bills than we had money to pay them. Mm -hmm. We had back bills, unpaid bills. Mm -hmm. um, within a year, due to hard work and administering policy the way it was supposed to be and taking a, a religiously, you know, a, a failingly putting 10% to reserves every week, we not only uncrossed the cash on hand versus bills owing. In other words, you know, now we have more reserve cash than we have bills. And mm. We're doing great. Within a year, we had over a million dollars in reserves. And I remember we all, all the execs were taken out to a Moroccan cuisine restaurant in Hollywood called Dharma Grebs. And we had this big feast to celebrate the $1 million cash bill spread at Ashland. Mm -hmm. And that happened within the first year of my being on staff. Mm -hmm. I did what I did. I was really good at it. Yeah. I was an upstate. I would never, other than wanting to leave and being put in that lower condition, which ultimately ruled an injustice. And it was, uh, what was the word? It was sustained ended or whatever it never was officially canceled because <laughs> they just couldn't admit that that but it was suspended right <laughs> um, i never was in a court of ethics or an ethics hearing or a committee of evidence or any of that you know those so-called ethics and justice procedures no, me neither we were upstarts what can i say we were upstarts uh, yeah so Okay, so there was all of a sudden everything hunky-dory. You know, Mark doesn't have crimes. Uh, your wife's allowed to be on staff. And um, they still didn't have my kid in the cadet order. They didn't have enough nannies. Hmm. Okay. That Scientology was chronically, illegally operating the cadet order. Under California codes, hmm. they did not have enough child care workers to be legal mm. well and in this country i think it's one ad, one adult per three children and mm. um when back in the 70s and 80s there was a situation where it'd be one adult to 80 children mm. yeah and there was one one child drowned uh, an uh, eight -year -old child and i have an interesting issue called the cadet org slash cadet estates org establishment eval. If you never read that, I need to send it to you. Mm, please do. In it, Scientology is confessing they're known like the things they know that they were doing wrong. Mm. Like, for example, they admit that the cadet org was not legal. Mm. It was not manned with enough child care worker mm. they admit that the castoffs the recruits that the orgs didn't want because they weren't qualified 
were posted at the cathedral and they referred to them as sex perverts, DBs, degraded and beings. criminals. Mm -hmm. Degraded beings, sex perverts, and criminals. They admit this in this email, that they were posting people like that to take care of the kiddos. In this email, it's AIDS Order 203-71 is the AIDS order. Hmm. It's by um, Bill Price, an evaluator. Hmm. And, and it's a multiple page issue, like about 16 or 18 pages hmm. or something. It's a very big thing. Uh, and they were they talk in there about um, chaining a cadet to an electrical outlet and nearly electrocuting it to death. They talk about the kids being so unsupervised that they were going around in cedar stealing, going in the birthing room, you know, and stealing while the, you know, staff were away on post during the day. Hmm. I, I know from my own son's experience, who in 1981 was seven years old, that he would slip out of the cadet org by climbing up a tree next to the chain link fence around the Apollo Training Academy there on Fountain Avenue, slide down you know, the fence and run up to Vermont Avenue a couple of blocks away and hop on the Southern California Rapid Transit District bus at six years old and ride around Hollywood all day long on the bus. Mm. Take the entire circuit more than once just, mm. just to get away from the craziness. Mm. I interviewed a... Um... Mm -hmm. A, a young man who at the age of he was 14 when I interviewed him he was eight when his parents went over and, and he was in the blue buildings um as part of the cadet org and and he talked about just a gang of kids with nobody supervising them and because the blue buildings the cities of Lebanon had been a hospital it had never been properly cleaned out I mean I talked with people who helped clear remains out of the crematorium there um but years later, years later, um, in the early 90s, but he was there you know, what, about 1981 or something. And he was saying that, that they'd open closets and there'd still be syringes and drugs left over. From, oh, yes. And, and they'd go up on the roof and play on the roof. Eight years old, you know, unsupervised. I can remember when they found a liter-sized glass jar of liquid morphine in cedars oh yeah <laughs> of course cedars of lebanon had cedars of sinai built in beverly hills hmm. and they moved in there but you know years before hubbard and scientology bought cedars they stopped renovating the complex so they knew they were going to be vacating it okay but yeah. they left a lot of stuff behind. And yeah, I actually saw this. This is not hearsay. I saw this jar of morphine. Mm. And there's other stuff too, of course, but wow. <laughs> yeah, somewhat irresponsible for the most ethical group on the planet. <laughs> well, so there was 77. Um, things improved slightly for a time you know and i chilled out because uh, i got handled mm -hmm. 
where I didn't want to leave. Um, then we had the list one era, and that was really hard, you know, losing my senior and essentially taking on a workload that was double. Hmm. Because Jim, my senior, who had been treasury sick, did he hold he 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 did certain parts of the department nine in Scientology that's records, assets, and materiel. It includes the audits, you know, financial audits, yeah. the bookkeeping records. It includes bank reconciliation, uh, supplies, mm -hmm. managing all the assets like the furniture and whatnot in the mm -hmm. building. Banking, I said that, I guess. Well, now all of a sudden I had to do that too and continue to do Department 8, which has five sections, five financial um, planning liaison, financial planning activation, purchasing, bills paying unit, and the payroll unit. Mm. I'm doing all that. And I'm now a div head. I'm going to meetings every morning, product conference, wasting an inordinate amount of time listening to the plans that all the other div heads do, what they're going to do to increase production, their quotas, their debug plans, their mm -hmm. battle plan, all that crap. Like nothing to do with me, yet I'm required to sit there and listen to all that. Yeah. When I could have been actually doing so much more, but. Uh, it was crazy. I worked an average of 104 hours a week, every week. Um, next thing I remember after the RPF time period, the list one, you know, mission and all those staffing in the RPF. In 1979, um, December, we received a mission again, into Asheville, and it was run by Bill Franks. Hmm. This is before he was appointed executive director international. Hmm. He arrived at, in Asheville in December 79 and was on that mission until March 13th, 1980. It wrapped on Hubbard's birthday, hmm. uh, 43 years ago today. Bill Franks ran Asho on uh, an LRH advice that I've seen, and I wish I had a copy of it. I don't, but back then, I was, in addition to holding all of Department 8 and Department 9 and Treasury Sec, I was financial planning chairman, too. Okay. Sorry, let, let me just... <laughs> if I figured this out mathematically, 104 hours a week, that's about 15 hours a day. Is that right? Yeah. Every day. Let me see. 104 divided by 7. I never looked at it that way, but um, that's an average of 14.85 hours a day. Yeah. Just unbelievable. Now, my normal operating schedule because of how financial planning occurs every thursday hmm. after the weekends local time two o'clock stats are turned in 2 p.m local time hmm. and then everybody submits their purchase orders and thursday night financial planning gets together and hashes out what the budget's going to be for the coming week you know what what we're going to actually spend 
um, generally speaking, all the years that I was financial planning chairman, which I stopped being in 1981, but so we're talking about four years, I guess. There were me and David Lane, the HCO area sick. For all practical purposes, we were financial planning because none of the other division heads ever participated. They're supposed to. It's supposed to be done by ad count, advisory council, which is composed of all the heads of all the divisions. But David and I were the only two that ever took responsibility for it. Yeah. And one night during that mission that Bill Franks was running, December 79 to March 80, David and I were talking about something. Or other. He says, hold on, Mark. And he, his office was across the hall on the mezzanine level of Ashland. He ran over there to get a transcript from, I think it was from the FEBC, the Flag Executive Briefing Course uh, that was held, you know, on originally on board the Apollo in 1971 time period. I With think. Jay Hurwitz as the course supervisor. Yeah. Oh. And he showed me, he opened up and he showed me, Mark, look at this. It's this paragraph right here. It's burned in my mind to this day. And that's why I wish I could find it to verify. Mm. My recall is that Hubbard said, quote, the blunt threat of punishment alone and unmistakable can get stats up, unquote. And the point is, David Lane was showing me, this HCO area set friend of mine, what Bill Franks was doing. And that's exactly what he was doing. I'm sorry, Bill, rest in peace wherever you are, but you know damn well what he did was he was going around to the org during that Darch period, they called it December 79 to March 80, was referred to as Darch. He also called us uh, Dachau, almost like, and he made uh, allusions to Auschwitz mm. and how he was the Fuhrer running us all as slaves. I mean, it was a bizarre time period. Mm. Okay. But, but, I mean, one day I heard Bill Franks arrive at David Lane's office across the hall from mine. We generally would keep our doors open, you know, when we were working. Yeah. And Bill walked in there and said to David, you will have a recruit within one hour or else you're on the RPF. This is not hearsay. This is something I heard. Yeah. And that's what he was doing. We were, during that time period, given hourly production quotas mm. that we had to meet. And they were enforced under threat of punishment, mm. like a lower condition assignment, at least, or an RPF assignment. Mm. Now, David was trembling in his boots. I mean, who wants to go to the RPF? Unfortunately, he went out on the street around the complex there at Cedars and found some guy and said, and David admitted this to me later after he had left and I had left and we reconnected. He said, Mark, I went out there and I told this guy that like he was homeless, kind of like, uh, well, what he called a DB, a degraded being, mm -hmm. like a criminal type of guy. David's words. 
And I would concur. Because <laughs> I, I, well, I'll get to that. He told this fellow, look, man, I need you to come in here, you know, this blue building over and sign this contract. You'll get a, a bunk, you know, a place to crash. You'll get meals. You can take a shower, clean yourself up. And I don't care if you stay past Friday. <laughs> After that, but I just need you to stay from whatever it was, you know, like Wednesday night through Friday. And after that, you know, fine. If you want to leave, I don't care. Because mm -hmm. he wanted to meet his recruitment quota. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sally Dean, if you're listening, you will know that what happened because of that unqualified recruit. I was awoken in the middle of the night between two and three o'clock by a woman screaming. My birthing area was 606 Lebanon Hall in the Cedars complex. And a woman down the hall from me was screaming. And I jumped up, threw on some jeans and ran down there. And there was this recruit that David Lane had recruited that way, I just described trying to suffocate Sally Dean by putting a pillow over her head. He'd already battered her, you know, in the face, slapped her, knocked her around. Apparently he was trying to rape her and she was screaming and he was trying to muffle and suffocate her with a pillow. I broke that up and the guy ran out, ran down the stairwell and got away. I wasn't able to stop him. It was just me, you know, that was there breaking it up. So that's an example of the kind of thing that can happen and did happen during that time period because of the stat push, if you will. You know, the, the threat to get your stats up caused a lot of false reporting of statistics and not genuine, like what they would call true production. Okay, like bullshit, a lot of crap going on. Okay? And it's what will happen when you're focused upon statistical management rather than actually getting the job done. Yeah. You know, people will cheat. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.